May I pray for you, please? Father God, I thank you for Eugene and for his investment and uh, giving up his life to serve you, Father. And I pray that today he would help us to hear from you, that you'd use him to speak to us and to uh, lead us onward uh, in our journey as um, people of Aotearoa. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Aaron. Nga mihi nui nui kia koutou i tēnei ata. Uh, ko Eugene toku ingoa, uh, ko wai au, ko te ririo rāhiri toku maonga, ko te pewhairangi toku aua, ko nga toku matawharua, me ko matātua o kuwaka, ko nga puhi toku iwi, ko nga tirehia toku hapu, ko hiruharama hau, me ko te fiti oro o kumarai, uh, ko te kemara apiata toku tua tupuna, no reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, kia ora tātou katoa. So, what's up everybody? How are we going? Um, today, I don't normally start doing my pipiha, but today it is, um, according to Māori protocol, it is, it is the right thing to do. It is tika, because today I'll be talking about my ancestor, um, who, and so my lineage, um, talking about Ngāpuhi and that initial corridor, but also Te Kimura Apiata is my direct ancestor, and he was the first to speak at the Treaty of Waitangi. So it is um, apt that five, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven generations down from that moment, you get to have me come in here talking to you about that situation. Praise God. <clears throat> So yeah, today, um, this morning, we're going to be looking at the whakapapa of the Treaty of Waitangi. The awesome thing about the whakapapa or the lineage of the treaty, the document, is that it also is a documentation of the history of the gospel in our nation. But even prior to the gospel, it is the story of God revealing himself to this land, to this people, um, and to this whenua, the situation. So wait, let me just check left. Is right? Right is right is right. Left, right is right. Um, so yeah, I just want to start. I'm not going to read um, all of this, um, and but remind us that in Acts 7 and in Joshua 24, so in Acts 7 we have the story of Stephen who gets stoned, um, not the 420 version, um, and he ends up dying, but Prior to doing that, he shares the history of the Jewish nation, which is amazing. And unfortunately, the result was him dying in this moment. But what he did was he recounted the history and said, hey, guys, remember when God did this. If we look um, in Joshua 24, Joshua, at the end of the book of Joshua, before he dies, he does the same thing. Fortunately, he doesn't like get stoned to death. He just dies of old age. But he says to Israel, before I go my way, let me remind you of what God has done for us. He released us from Egypt. He saved us. He sent us birds, etc., etc. And so today, hopefully, um, hopefully you don't stone me. That'd be awesome. But hopefully we can go on that journey of recounting the history of God in this country. And hopefully that can reinvigorate us and re-inspire us for the future. Um, so things that we can, might cover today, I don't want to like um, take up too much time, and I'll try and blast through some of this. Um, but obviously, the fuck up of the treaty, um, some corridor on worldviews. Um, another word for it is like racism. 
Um, but we'd, we'd, we'd call it the nice word. Um, and then if we get to it, how to get from A to biculturalism. Does that sound all right? Main. Oops. Oh, yeah, jokes. So we're going to start, and I've decided to do this chronologically because it makes more sense, I guess, in a linear fashion. When I do it with youth, they don't need linear, they just need stories. But we're going to start from 1766. There's this dude, his name was Toirua. Everyone say Toirua. Very good, very good. You just passed Te Reo Māori, level one. And this dude, Toirua, um, was a prophet. And just to tell some stories about what he did, oh, obviously I wrote it up there. Yeah, before the parkour arrived, he received a vision, and the vision had a boat um, with sails, and he talks about this in Te Reo Māori, um, and it had these people dressed weirdly, and that they would bring this new god, um, who instead of killing other gods, would die to save people. Crazy. And so um, here's the name. It's Māori. It's long. But just letting you know that this dude, 1766, three years before the Endeavour sighting, this dude had this vision given from God. And he was considered a raving madman. What is this guy up to? And then three years later, everyone's like, this guy's a genius. He knows what he's talking about. Oops, that was... Fast forward to the 1790s. Anyone heard of the Clapham sect? Oh, we got some people. Anyone heard of William Wilberforce? Anyone heard the song Amazing Grace? There we go. Now everyone, we got everyone. We got you all. Um, so, fuck up of Amazing Grace, um, the abolition of slavery. William Wilberforce, he was the dude that essentially drove and pushed that. It was a revelation from God for him that, Oh my gosh, look, those people that look like humans, they're actually humans. Maybe we should treat them like humans. And so he goes on his journey um, and takes a whole lot of other learned um, lecturers, teachers, but also politicians. And they all live on like Clapham Street, essentially. And so they form the Clapham sect. Um, And so... The fuck about the Clapham sect and how it attributes itself to the treaty is insane because they, obviously they did the abolition of slavery, which was like setting free of black slaves in the known Western world. But prior to that, they drafted up um, a document called the document, no, the Bill of Indigenous Rights for Indigenous Peoples. And so what that document said essentially was we acknowledge because they'd seen like Australia, bad, bad stuff happen. Anyone Australian in here? Ah, you're a good guy. That's right, we forgive you because you're here. You're not over there. Um, Yeah, so Australia doing bad things. And so the Clapham sect was like, guys, that is terrible. They're human beings. Let's draft some political documents to give them rights. And so... Uh, in 1836, um, they drafted the Treaty of Waitangi. This bunch of Christian dudes who were in Parliament said, hey, look, this is the last conquered nation. We need to do right by them and make sure that they have an equal powered document saying that we can be two peoples together. Crazy, eh? Did anyone know that? This is mind-blowing. This blew my mind. Um, so they were 
um, connected to this thing called New Zealand Christian, no, New Zealand, it was Christian, New Zealand Church Missionary Society. Anyone heard of NZCMS? A few people. They're awesome. They do some cool stuff. They're still around now. Um, and so the Clapham sect essentially founded NZCMS and sent them out on missionary, um, what are they called? Missions? Missionary missions? Um, to indigenous countries and said, hey, we want you to take the gospel and whatever trade or tool you've got. And so most of them were farmers. Um, and so the Clapham sect also instigated this. So the first missionary that came, um, officially, Samuel Marsden, was one of these dudes, NZCMS, who was sent by the Clapham sect. It's like crazy, yeah, connecting the dots. So I'm just going to take a swig of water. So awkward. I was like sick last week, so my mouth dries out real fast. Okay, so, back on the wagon. Samuel Marsden, 1817 and Um, Just as a like low-key plug, this is a book, a kid's book that you can buy from Scripture Union, um, which um, tells about the story of Samuel Marsden and Ruatara, um, and you can read it to your kids, and it's real good, and it's cheap. Talk to Neville. See the dude with the dread, oh, the curly hair? You can talk to him afterwards. Um, so Samuel Marsden and Ruatara. Ruatara was a chief, a Ngāpuhi chief. He was really young. He was one of the youngest chiefs. He, um, after the settlers had come around early 1800s, he decided to jump on a boat because he was like, I want to be a whaler and I want to meet the king. Um, consequently, didn't make it to England. Uh, ended up enslaved on two different ships and then was stranded on shore in Australia where Samuel Marsden picked him up and said, hey, come work for me. And so Samuel Marsden taught him farming, taught him about Christ, um, and thought, because there, there's some bad history with Samuel Marsden and the next dude, um, Henry Williams, in terms of their mission in Australia. But they did some good stuff here. Um, and the main reason that they have issue with their work in Australia was because they were working for indigenous people, and the cultural worldview at the time was that they were considered animals. Flora and fauna, I think, was the legislation that was passed. And so they had a bad time in Australia. But basically, Sammy Marsden said, oh, look at this young, strapping, Māori fella. Very intelligent. He must have good people. And so um, when Ruatari got healthy, came back to New Zealand, invited Samuel Marsden to come over and build a church, of all things, um, in his iwi. And so that was the first encounter with missionaries. Um, the main influence at the time was farming, because um, Ruatara was like, hey, those farming tools, can you like bring them over to Aotearoa? And Samuel Marsden was like, yes, missionary opportunity. Māori was like, yeah, potatoes. Fast forward. We have this dude on the right, Henry Williams, and Honeheke. Does anyone heard of Henry Williams? Oh, quite a few. He's, he's a good dude. Anyone heard of Honeheke? <laughs> what is he most famous for? Cutting the flagpole down? How many times? Three times. Nice. I am from Ngāpuhi. He is like, so my ancestor, he is like the nephew to my ancestor. Apparently he cut it down four times officially. The fourth one was a metal pole. 
took a week. I don't know why they didn't get him. They should have the dinging like miles away, but they let him get it down and then they imprisoned him. But um, yeah, in the 1830s, um, when Hecker was young, Henry Williams had just come to New Zealand from his Australian mission, um, got kicked out of Australia, got sent to New Zealand, worked with um, New Zealanders, was invited to the Ngāpuhi um, district, um, built a church, and started educating young Māori chieftains boys uh, in English, maths, and all the civilization things, aspects, and mainly taught them Christianity. So when Samuel Marsden came, he was like probably the least successful missionary in history. But then after um, Henry Williams started opened up the school, then you started seeing Christianity plant itself amongst Māori people. Um, and obviously, once you get the kids, the kids take it home. They say, hey, look, heard about this God, dude. He seems pretty cool. The older people are like, oh, that's right. That's what Toidor said like 30 years ago. And then they started having like a mini pockets of revival amongst Ngāpuhi. So just some context about the time. Uh, what is it, 1807 to 1830s? Yeah, 20,000 people were killed. So Honihike or Hongihika, my other ancestor, went and met up with the king, got a suit of armour, traded for guns, brought guns back, killed heaps of people, heaps of people. Enslaved, every time they went on a raid, they enslaved three to three to 4,000 people every trip. Um, and so, yeah, thousands killed, 20,000-ish um, my mind, I would say that there was more people killed, but there was lots of slaves, up to 16,000. Um, and they went all across the nation of Aotearoa with their guns, killing, enslaving. Sounds good, eh? Um, and has anyone heard the word Utu before? What does it mean? Revenge. So that's what we get told it means. It does mean that. It actually means restoration or balance. So when I want to um, pay for something, I don't have like a, in Māori, I would be utu. I would make restoration or balance. Um, and utu, there is two ways to restore balance. If someone was killed, um, so say someone of my family was killed, then I have to take a life from the other family. And it didn't have to be killed, they could just be given to my family in replacement. Or um, something of equal value could be given. So, for example, a life could be taken, but then a treasure could be given. So it was a matter of taking the deficit. I mean, we all love this, like economics, you know, keep a good ledger. It was taking the red and putting it in the black. That's what Utu was all about. Now, unfortunately, during the, where are we at, 1800s, um, guns just tipped the balance. It was like, hey, I'm going to take Utu and make transactions for free because I have guns. At the signing of the treaty, this is the good bit. So Treaty of Waitangi happened 1840. At the signing of the treaty, there was 2,000 Pākehā and roughly 70,000 to 120,000 Māori. Um, when I started running this corridor, um, a lot of the people would come back and say, hey, but like, you know, didn't Māori need the Treaty of Waitangi? Uh, last time I did maths, which was like 15 years ago, um, 2,000 people couldn't really do a lot to 70,000. Does that would be, be a fair call? Anyone want to dispute that? 
2,000 guns versus 50,000 guns. Yeah. So, it wasn't a matter of power. If we take it from this view, it was more of a matter of transaction. Um, obviously, 1860, sickness, people died. So the three parties present at the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi were the Crown, um, who was Governor Hobson, the Māori, who were the assorted chiefs um, of Ngāpuhi specifically at this time, um, and the church, which was represented by Henry Williams. We're following. We've got to say, we're good. So, just to get into the treaty, everyone like knows about the Treaty of Waitangi, roughly, eh? We're like, yeah. So, I'll just go over the paraphrased versions um, of the things. First clause, the English says, Māori give up all sovereignty to the Crown. Um, Māori version says that they cede governance with an understanding from a biblical perspective. Um, does anyone know where the word governance pops in the Bible? It happens twice. Any guesses? I'll give you the first one for free. Jesus was about to be executed by a governor called Pilate. So that was the first one. And the second one was Darius. Anyone heard of Darius in the Bible? Governor Darius of Persia, who wasn't Persian, ironically. And so governance from the perspective of Māori or Kawanatanga wasn't a matter of ceding everything, because that's what sovereignty says, power, rights, authority. It was a matter of saying, okay, you come and govern your people, and we will govern ours. Does that make sense, the differences? So we don't give power and rights to you. We give power and rights to you to govern your people, and we'll govern ours. So that's the first clause. There's a large discrepancy. Second clause, um, called the Archaic Trade Me Act. Um, and the English says, Māori have full, exclusive, undisturbed. Uh, in my view, all those words, like full, you could have left it at full, well, that's fine. Possession of their land, and if they want to sell it, the Crown will act as a broker. Sounds pretty fair, eh? The Māori one is pretty much the same, but it says specifically that Māori have power over their own treasures, over their land, and power over themselves. So there's not that much wrong with that, eh? Seems pretty fine. Um, last one talks about citizenship and makes English New Zealand citizens and vice versa. Now, um, anyone Māori in here? Have you guys got British passports? Nah, neither. Working on it. We're working on it. But under the treaty, we should be able to have a British passport. Um, so, it doesn't seem too bad, eh? Like, as a document, it seems, besides the first clause, it seems like if we stuck to most of those things, everything would have turned out fine. Um Turn to the person next year, in regards to the first clause, just discuss for a minute. No, we'll give you two minutes because it's hard, everyone. In the first clause, because it talks about dual power. So what do you think that would have looked like to the person next year? Three minutes. What does dual power, would, what would that have looked like? Because at the moment we have one system of government, but what would dual one look like? Turn to the person next year, three minutes, go.
Okay, anyone got any ideas? What could it have looked like? Two different systems. Yes. Would it have um, looked healthy? Had a yes. Anyone disagree? Sorry, what was that? It would look healthy to you. Yeah, 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 totally. So it would have actually looked okay. But I could have. Would have, could have. It hasn't happened yet. Nah, jokes. Anyone think that it would have looked like chaos? Most people, eh? Let's, let's be honest. It would have looked like chaos. Um... Yeah, I find that an interesting question. Like, what would it look like if we did it now? Would it look like two separate forms of government? Would it look like um, setting up states, even though we're like a tiny country, we just become like a mini America with like little iwi, like setting up the little state holds? Um, don't know. But I think it would look different. If we look at the foundation of our government, and I'm not going to get too much into this because I just love reading history. Um, but we look at the royal charters that Hobson got given when he came over. His main job was to set up a government. He didn't know how to do that. He was an admiral. Um, he was not a politician at all. Um, therefore, the initial systems of government were terrible um, and were heavily power biased. And so what we have is like the piecemealed, bandaged version of that start at the moment. So even what we have, if we look at the history of it, didn't start on good foundations. So surely we have a way to go to be able to make it whole again. But I just want to make a reference to the royal charters just because if you dig up this history, you'll find those things. Um, so, yeah, information. So let's talk about this dude. Te kimura apiata. Um, te kai teke. Anyone speak Māori in here? Okay, that's good. Therefore, no, I mean, no one laughed, so that's good. Um, so te kimura apiata is my tupuna. He was um, the senior most Ngāpuhi chief at the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. Therefore, he spoke first. Um, in a Māori tikanga process, the person with the most mana speaks first and speaks last. Um, and normally everyone would just go with their decision. Now, fortunately, we got the treaty, which means that we didn't go with his decision. Um, but I'm going to play a little video. But just to warn you, te kaiteke um, means... Oh, wait, no, let me preface it. So, in Māori culture... The woman is the most important person in a relationship. Why? Because if you don't have woman, you don't have children. If you don't have children, you don't have family. If you don't have family, you don't have an iwi. Therefore, um, on a porphyry process, anyone been part of a porphyry before? Oh, quite a few. So normally um, what we do now, because we're like nice and formal about it, is we put the woman in front and the men at the back. Um, but traditionally it wasn't that way. It was men in front, women in back. Why? Because your woman is the most important. Therefore, you would protect them from the other people who might want to steal them. When you put your woman in front, it was a sign of submission. Hey, you can just take our wahine. And so, um, yeah, women are the most important because they are the gateway of life. Now, tikai tiki means, um, I mean, now I feel uncomfortable, but I'm going to play the video anyway. It means vagina eater. 
okay? And he had 17 wives, and so he had the most money because he could retain 17 wives um, and keep them all healthy and alive, and no one could steal them from him. It's pretty impressive, eh? Like, I couldn't do it. I can barely handle one wife. But yeah, just preface that because that was his title. If you read in the history, they're like, Tricky, Tricky. And I'm like, he's got other titles, guys. You could use them. But yeah, alas, we are here. Oh, that way. Luke, can you save me? Oh, there we go. Yeah, boy. Videos, videos. Health to the old governor. This is mine to thee. I am not pleased towards thee. I do not wish for thee. To Kemera Kaitiki. Always was a troublemaker and complainer. He was Heke's uncle. A warrior. And a hard man to fathom. あ、ケイテケ。はい。エランガチラ。エマルマンナク。カレアハウエハカヤナキアノホマイクエキタ。Don't <laughs> Hanged by the neck. I know I will never say yes to you staying. You English are not kind to us like our foreigners. Go back. Go back, Governor. I will never say yes to you staying. I will not consent to thy staying. Go. Um, which I can't remember the name of it now. It's like, it's like the Treaty of Waitangi, the true story or something. Um, as a recreation of those kōrero, um, and they were all written down by William Kilenzo, so they're just reading off a script that was from that time. And so that was my ancestor. The first to speak said, go, governor, you are not welcome here. <clears throat> and like I said, in Tikanga Māori, he would have spoken first and everyone would have had to follow line, except for um, the next moment, which was this dude, Henry Williams, or Karufa. Everyone say Karufa. It literally means four eyes, because he had glasses. So Henry Williams was the missionary. He was worked for the Anglican Church, also the Christian Missionary Society, um, and was part of the Clapham sect and from that long-distance connection. Um, he spoke on the day of the treaty. He obviously translated um, the Māori to the English because none of the chiefs could speak, or some of the chiefs could speak English, but most of them spoke te reo Māori. And his um, job was two nights before, um, Hobson brought the English version of the treaty and he had to translate it with his son into te reo Māori. And so this guy is vilified from that transition of kāwanatanga versus sovereignty. Um, a better word to use would have been mana from a Māori perspective. But he specifically said that no one in his journal 
the Māori wouldn't sign a treaty that said give over all your power and rights and everything, become slaves, essentially. So that's why he used the word governorship. Um, on the day, the Māori obviously didn't look like they were going to sign the treaty. If the first speaker stood up and said no, everyone was supposed to follow line. But he did a rousing speech, which you can find transcriptions of it um, in books and on the internet, and referred to uh, the book of Judges. Not Judges, Joshua, the book of Joshua. And the Gibeonites. Anyone heard of the Gibeonites? This is like pretty abstract Old Testament stuff. People are like, pfft. Gibeonites. So a brief story about the Gibeonites. They are the first and only reference to a treaty um, in the Bible. And basically what happens is Joshua's task is to go through the land of Canaan and kill everybody. Like, wow, what a job. And so he's going around doing a really good job killing people. And the Gibeonites, they're the next on the hit list. And so they decide, hey, we don't want to die. So... Let's dress up in old clothes and ride skinny camels and pretend like we came from far away and go visit the Israelites. And so when they get to the Israelites, they say, hey, look, we've come from ages away. Look, we've got moldy bread. Um, and we just heard about your God, and it's a, he's amazing. So like, let's sign a covenant. Before um, God, because the Israelites are like, yeah, we're pretty awesome. Our God's pretty awesome. Yeah, man, let's do it. And so they signed this covenant between them, the Gibeonites, and God, saying we will never wipe out the Gibeonites because they are so awesome and love God so much. Next day, the Israelites rocking up to the next town, about to kill them, and the Gibeonites come out and say, hey, we got a treaty. And so the Israelites, obviously, what is their natural reaction going to be? You guys suck. We're going to kill you anyway. As they try and go up, God says, no. You signed a treaty slash covenant with me and the Gibeonites. You cannot kill them ever. You said ever, so it's going to be ever. Therefore, the Gibeonites got to live. They got enslaved. I mean, like, let's skip over that. But, but they didn't die. So worth Fast forward to Samuel, 2 Samuel. Um, dude by the name of, who was the tall dude? Saul. By the name of Saul. Obviously, like we read the story of Saul and he's like probably like one of the biggest dropkicks of the Bible. Learn from him. Don't be Saul. Um, and he constantly drops the ball with God and then tries to make up for it by doing things. Okay. Also another lesson. Stop doing things. Um, and so one time he's like looking through the history books and he's like, oh, the Gibeonites. Yeah, that's right. We're supposed to wipe them out. And so he goes and kills the Gibeonites. This is 400 years later. After that happens, um, Israel experiences drought for four years and wipes out millions. I don't know how there were that many people. Um, David goes um, to the tabernacle. Oh, not tabernacle. Is it Tabernacle? The Ark of the Covenant prays to God and says, God, why are you killing my people? Why is there a drought going on? Um, and God's like, it's because Saul killed those dudes that you weren't supposed to. You need to go make peace with them. And so if we look at that and 
Henry Williams saying, essentially, if you guys sign this treaty, God will defend it. And if you're a Christian sitting there, loving God, I would sign it. This dude, this man of God, with the manner of God, just said that God would back this treaty up. Therefore, uh, next video, please. Luke. ごて、ほきよてあほてためへいへい。色がいてんまってんが。ホップス。ごじいせ。ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと、ちょっと
Be now a father for us. We are but children. It is but the word of God. He um, grew up under Henry Williams um, in the missionary school, learned about God, was a devout follower of Christ. Um, And in that moment, he turned the tables. Because 80% of the chiefs there had some semblance of either faith or connection to the church via the missionaries, um, some sort of connection to God. Um, And in that moment with his rousing speech, after Henry Williams talking about the Gibeonites, they signed. So when I look at that, I think of that conversation and go, without God's presence even up to the document on the Pākehā side, but in that moment for the Māori, if it wasn't for God, that document wouldn't have happened. Period. Because that was a turning point. That was a moment where it could have just been thrown on the ground, but God stepped in, boom. Changed that moment. Crazy. So after that, here's when the good stuff happens. So 1844, uh, if... Don't want to get into the, all the history stuff, but if you look at all the legislation passed from 1844 um, to the 1950s, it was terrible land confiscation. Basically, in 1844, they wrote a bill. Um, it's called the Land Rights Bill, which nullified the entire Treaty of Waitangi. Um, and so, at that time, Maori were getting pretty angry. But 1845, revival happened. 65,000 Maori attend church services. If we look at the stats before, there was possibly 70, but up to 120,000 Māori present in New Zealand at the time. If it's 65,000 out of 70,000, that's a pretty good return rate. It's better than what we're pulling now. (laughs) Put the jab in there. Um, But um, who here has heard of Jubilee? Read read that in their Bible, in the Old Testament. It's crazy. It's such a crazy concept. Basically, every 70 years, um, the nation of Israel would reset the entire economy back to original land holdings, original money values, everything. Every, all the wealth would be reestablished so everyone, every generation got to have a fresh start. And so Ngāpuhi, obviously, um, embedded in scripture, read about Jubilee and go, we're a bit overdue. And so all the tens of thousands of slaves that they took captive in the 1830s, they set free. And they all went home. Now, um, Hongihika refers to Christianity as a religion for slaves because it is disempowering to leadership and empowering to people with no power. Um, he wasn't wrong. Every single slave that was captured by Ngāpuhi had become Christian. And when they went home, they could talk about the miracle of God. Slaves were never set free for Māori. They were always transactionally paid for. But in this moment of them being set free, they went home, got home to their tribe iwi and said, Hey, look, the God of the heavens and the earth has released me and set me free to come to you. Therefore, um, every other, and this is after this moment, every other Māori iwi that had a slave come back to them became Christian. And there was a massive revival of God amongst Māori people. 1845. 
Pretty cool. So to summarize this whole moment, you had Toidor, the prophet, you got the claim sex by human rights, Marzin does his thing, Ngabuhi killed people, takes slaves. Um, Henry Williams, conversion, treaty, and then we have the Jubilee. Sounds pretty cool, eh? Did anyone know any of this stuff before today? Is this like moderately my oh yes, had some people. Killed it, killed it. Is this crazy though? Like how powerful has God been here prior to now? How much more powerful can he be in the future? Oh, nah, no questions. Okay, so we're going to really blast through this worldview stuff. So worldview is like some key stuff because um, we are living in a Western-dominated society, which isn't that wrong, um, but has some things quite wrong. And so other worldviews and perspectives can help us fix that. Oh, no, don't play that. Wait, does anyone know who that is? Taika Waititi. Does anyone know what this reference is? Say no to racism. Well, say yes to racism. Um, I picked this up last year. It was on Facebook. Maori culture, by which our education system now defines itself as a primitive culture, primitivism represents an early phase of human development long before mankind had achieved civilization. Primitivism is not preferable to civilization. Civilization has elevated our minds and refined our nature. Primitivism bears the stamp of our lowly origins. Last year, that was on Facebook. Crazy. People still think that way. Primitivism, civilization, that's worldview. It's not truth, though. We assume that civilization, that the flushing toilet, that the iPad, that these good things that we have are a sign of the elevation of humanity. It's not entirely the truth. So some of the worldviews at the time, Māori had this word kaitiaki. Everyone say kaitiaki. Oh, very good. Anyone know what it means? Come on, someone, surely. Caretaker, that's what you said? Or did you just hand up? Caretaker, I'll take caretaker, but thank you. Means caretaker. Their worldview was my job as a human being is to look after the world and look after the things on it. Sounds very Hebrew, eh? Sounds very Adam, very Adam and Eve. Um, and religion dictated the lifestyle. So prior to Christianity, they had their own ngātua Māori. Um, and so that um, had protocols and processes throughout their entire lifestyle that they lived out without fail. Because if you didn't honour the ancestors or you didn't honour the um, God of the tree, when you cut down the tree, you would die. And death is not preferable to life. So you would do the things. Therefore, when Christianity became a thing amongst Māori people, they lapped the Bible up and lived it to a T. Like Jubilee is such an amazing example. Who would um, live the principle of Jubilee now? You hit 70, you just dole out all your wealth and your land and give it back to the original owners. Nobody would do it. Okay, let's be honest. And so that was them. Christianity was life. As soon as Christ was there, they were there with him. British colonists had a worldview. I own everything. Um, and like the Bible dictated for them, they had dominion over plants, fauna, other human beings, land, etc. 
and their lifestyle dictated how the religion looked. Um, an example is not even nowadays, but like 1960s, um, huge like economy revival, blah, blah, blah. And so saving, good stewardship, these words they sound familiar, um, became common things in our church settings. And so being a good steward was a person who saved a lot, who managed to have all the things, um, regardless of if it was Christ-centered or not. And it's an example of the lifestyle dictating how religion looks. Ownership concepts. Oh, I talked about that. Oh, yeah, control, power, blah, blah, blah. the kaitiakitanga. We have two words for ownership. One is toku, and that refers to, like, your boss, supervisor, parent, etc., and talks about responsibility. So if I'm talking about my boss, I'm not saying that they um, have ownership over me, toku boss. I'm saying toku boss, they, their job is to make my life amazing. Or my parents, toku parents, their job is to make my life the absolute best that it could be. Does that make sense? Whereas like, we talk about our boss now, it's like, oh my gosh, my, I mean, my boss is cool. I was have to say, because he's sitting here. But other people's bosses. Oh, my boss, they should give me a pay rise. Oh, my boss, I wish they did this. I wish they did that. In a Maori setting, with Toku, you didn't have to wish it was their job to do that. Whatever it is you needed, they give it. Oops. And Taku. Um, even down to a phone. Taku phone. In a Maori setting... I have responsibility over this phone to give it the best life that it could possibly have, which means I try to drop it as little as possible. Is it making sense? Here's a picture. Turn to the person next to you. Which one's the old one out? Everyone's like, why turn to the person next to you? It's so obvious. Oh, I'm going to use the laser. Is it this one? Is it that? Nah, jokes. That, it's that one, eh? In a Māori setting, because the other isn't important, whānau is important, that's the odd one out. Because this is the mum and the dad, and that's the child. And that's the stranger. Interesting, eh? So how do we get from A to bicultural? That's, I don't know. That seemed cool when I wrote it in. A to B. Um, so the ultimate goals would actually just like to be a bilingual nation. Um, lots of nations of, in the world are at minimum bilingual, but mostly trilingual. And they all learn English, because obviously like English people can't be bothered learning other languages, so it's just a pain in the butt. But being bilingual would be a good goal. And I can guarantee you, if we can be a bilingual nation, everything else will sort itself out. When you learn a nation's, another nation's language, you learn its culture, you learn what's important to it, and the benefits on our kids are amazing. What it does is it gives children two brains to think, two ways to attack a problem. Um, no longer is there just this 
I mean, English is like quite a linear language. No longer is there this specifically linear way to attack a problem. They now have, I don't know if they had Chinese. They have a different worldview, different context. So it makes them smarter. Oops. I'll skip that. Um, Let's play this one. This is cute. It's sad, but it's cute. I know that calling someone names, well, it's bad. But what about mispronunciation? Yes, we might be a multicultural nation, but it turns out we still get tongue-tied when it comes to pronouncing Māori, Samoan, Somalian, Indian and Chinese names. So, is this a sign of racism? Here's Mikey Sherman with the kids leading a cultural fight back. Hello, my name is Malu Luapuatuni. Hi, my name is Kahirangi. Um, I'm 10 years old. These kids love their names. Hi, my name is Latia Tukate. Hello, my name is Hamia Sarah. I'm cocky, I'm nine years old. In fact, they think they're pretty cool. It sort of sounds like the singer Bob Marley in that. I got my name from my uncle. He's cool. But sometimes people get it wrong. Most people don't really get my name right. Yes, I met a lot of people who could say my name properly. I felt, like, uncomfortable a little bit. Really, really wrong. People keep on thinking it's soda. Kahurangi. How does that make you feel? Sad. Yes, it can be pretty darn tough. So, is this racism? If you have simply not bothered to learn that name because it's a, a language that's different to your own, then I think that's where the racism issue comes into it. When it comes to names, we all struggle. Lita. Leisha. Kui Kiti. Toikitai. We do it with sports stars. Nangil Lamapi. Oteri Black. Oteri Black. Yep. We do it with place names. Now I know this. Oamaru. Amaru. And we do it to kids like Kahurangi. 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 Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Pretty good. You're good. Yes. yes. Should we start again? Name mangling can be as bad as name calling. I believe there is racism in the New Zealand education system and that, um, that manifests itself in lots of different ways. These kids are tackling the issue head on, supporting the countrywide campaign giving nothing to racism. No thanks, I'm racist on the inside. Talking about racism, it is a taboo subject, it is something that we like to not touch because it might offend someone. They're starting in the classroom, demanding teachers get it right. I think that they need to because, uh, well, first of all, like, during the year, they're going to pretty much be seeing them every single day, so they should actually get, um, get to know their names properly. And for those of you who say it's no big deal, listen up. Well, sometimes when they say that, I'm like, I'm like, that's not nice because those, those people are happy about their names and, like, and like they would like really appreciate it if you actually pronounce it properly. Why do you want people to say your name properly? So I don't feel like hurt. Remember, a little effort goes a long way. Giving nothing to racism is cool. 
Oh, anyone who says it's not a big deal only has to look at that. They were genuine tears there, and, th and that's what it's about. If it's upsetting someone like that, you should be making an effort, shouldn't you? And it's that whole thing, I think um, the teacher there nailed it on the head. If the intent is there, or if it's just not bothering, then that's mm. really unacceptable. And you know the interesting thing is that the young ones are leading the charge, and I've seen this, my little girls at kindy, and they are beautiful at their pronunciation. They're, and great, she, they're great on the yeah, Tarell. Yeah, they yeah. absolutely are. Um, my little girl corrected my mother the other day for not saying puriri correctly, and that's that, great. How did that go down? Well, Nana was like, oh, sorry, Juliet, and she was, yeah, of course, you know, you're, they're teaching us. Interesting thing with the corrections, though. So if I go down to Tauranga and someone says Tauranga, I'm from Auckland. Am I going to go down there and tell them how to pronounce it when they live there? Well, I think you know, you know what? I it's, think it's if, a dilemma. If you know it's correct, then I think. Yeah, but they're, they're that's then. the correct. So, um, after all that, I'm going to give you some tools. Um, I firmly believe, okay, by by being bilingual is like awesome as an ultimate goal, but we can start with saying names correctly. Um, I'll tell you a story. I studied at Fitidea for four years. Yes, I look at my wife. She knows all things. For four years, um, and when we graduated with our degrees, a month before the graduation, this lady was ringing everybody up, everybody, every, actually everybody, and asking, how do I say your name? And so you'd say it, and then she'd go, I'd, I'd be like, oh, Eugene Fuimono. She's like, Fuimono? Eugene Fuimono? It's like, yeah, yeah, that's right. And she's like, sweet. So she jotted down. And then she rang Hope. How do I say your name? So she rings up everybody. We get to the um, graduation and for Fatira Polytechnic, and um, they do the traditional Māori thing of doing a mihi whakatau, and then even like the um, chairman, who's like a Pākehā fellow, has a good-ass crack at it. I was like, yeah, bro, good try. And, um, and it's awesome. Um, but in their introduction, they um, said the greeting in every represented language to the absolute best of their ability. And I think that that set the tone for that graduation. So um, when people started receiving their awards, you had Māori family obviously getting up doing a haka for their kids. Pardon me. And then you had Samoan families getting up and singing a waiata for their kids. Um, but because everyone's name was being said properly, it set this atmosphere that allowed any culture to express itself with freedom. So we had... Um, and like honestly, like some of the singing was ugly. Um, like, but yeah, it was cool. It was cool, man. Like you had this Nepalese Fano, and I was like, man, I didn't expect to see them. But like, they had these three people, and these two people, other people ran up, and like sang like a short little ugly song to them. It was oh, but it was so beautiful. And so they sang their song, and you had like a Chinese family, and they this this couple, and it was like, oh man, I want to talk with them, but can't speak Mandarin but they stood up and they sang a song to their kid and their kid was like standing there awkward like what am I doing right now this isn't our thing but it set a precedence and it set an atmosphere of every culture feeling welcome um, and so and I just was blown away I was like okay if we can say names properly if that's the power of that how much more is the power of bilingual biculturalism so we're going to sing this song and I'm going to um, give you I'll sing it first it's to the tune of the stupid cupid cupid stupid 
stupid Cupid. <laughs> so, so that tune, and it goes like this. That's the fast version. Obviously, you got the tune. So, everyone, stand up. We're going to sing it a little bit slower. But this is an ace tool. You will say all names correctly after singing this song a hundred times in the shower. Um, so we'll sing it this. Uh, uh, one, two, three. Space. Sweet. Sit down. Round of applause for yourselves. Oh. Now we're going to practice some names. Otaki. Nice. Topo. Nice. Fangare. Man, I don't even, the song has changed lives. Fanganui. Now, there is always debate about this. If you're from Fanganui, you say Wanganui. Okay? If you're not, you can be like me. Fanganui. But let's practice the other one. Wanganui. Man, everyone's so good. Now, look, they're obviously getting harder. This is not pram, as uh, many people have said. Para, para, umu. Oh, so easy, so easy. Kahurangi. That's just for that little boy. Kahurangi, we said your name right, okay? You can stop crying. Oops. Oh, I can't even read that, eh? Waikika Muko. Waikika Muko. So good. Anyone want to give it a crack? That is the longest name. I'll let you know, though, almost all Māori names are actually this long. So ōtaki is a sentence. We just say one word. But we'll we start with ōtaki and we'll get, get there. I already told that. Oops. Oh. Um, before I wrap up, I just want to leave you with these. If you're into reading, I'm not really into it, but I started a job where I have to read, and these two books were really useful. Um, Bible and Treaty by Keith Newman and Huya Come Home by Jay Rooker are so good because they, what they do is they give an account 
a historical account of the Treaty of Waitangi from a, from a God-breathed perspective. What we've been given in schools from the 1960s is an economical perspective, but it's not the true story. Obviously, what I told you today is, to the, my best of the ability, the truest of the story with like a small amount of time. But God was there from the start. When you take God out of it, it's a transactional document. Put God back into it, it's a plan for us. Um, and so, yeah, my job, travel around the country, and I want to say that I've been seeing the spirit moving. Um, even though we're looking at the stats, and the stats are terrible, like Christianity's down. It's like the economy was down, now it's us. Um, 9% apparently of Christians regularly attend church. Um, otherwise, 30% go on the odd occasion. And we are the lowest that it's ever been in our history. And I look at that and I get excited. Because I'm like, man, that's an opportunity for God. No longer can we rely on what we've been doing or our past or programs or Hillsong or anything like that. Because now we are in a tipping point where God's like, hey, come back to me. Rely on me. But he's also been saying to lots of churches, look back, where have I been? And that will show you an indicator of where I'm going. And so I think that the Treaty of Waitangi is a foundational moment for us to be able to go, okay, what was God's plan? We might have gone a little bit off the rail. How can we get back to that? Because I would say that his plan for us from the start was to be the first truly bicultural nation, which would lead us to being the first truly multicultural nation, which would lead us to once again be the leaders to the world on a social justice thing. I mean, the sun rises here first for a reason, because we're the starter. We're the fire starter. We start the thing. Everyone copies us. Tiny little country, little motu, on the bottom of the planet. And so, my encouragement, but also my prayer, is that hopefully with this corridor, a little fire can be lit. A little bit of that dust of, oh, I wish I knew, or I didn't know that before, can be brushed off. But hopefully with this moment, we can go into the future forward. There's an old Māori saying, ka mua, ka muri. Walk into the future backwards. Yeah. Walk into the future backwards. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I mean, what that's saying is that to move forward, you have to look backwards and go, where have I come from to get to where I'm going? And I just get excited when I realize that God has been here the whole time, from the start to now, to the future. Um, so how do we wrap this up? I'm thinking maybe we'll stand and pray in little groups. And I think that the thing that I feel God is calling us to pray for is obviously revival. It's always a good thing to do. But that the tool um, would be this, the getting back to the original plan of God and hopefully pushing us forward into his future plan, which is us, the church, social justicing it, Holy Spiriting it, bringing life-giving change to our communities.
And yeah, like I said, what an opportunity crisis is. What an opportunity. Because now we can just say, wasn't me. Was all you. Is that cool? Just get like little praying for a bit and then obviously do some worship. Is that a thing? Do we do with that thing? Yeah, let's do that. So yeah, create a little rōpū, pray, whatever God's putting on your heart. But hopefully, yeah, that'll be cool. And then we'll finish with a fire. Ngā mihi.